Do you recall a day where everything clicked into place, where the world seemed to move in perfect harmony and every task flowed effortlessly? Introducing you to London Nootropics, adaptogenic coffee blends, thoughtfully crafted to elevate and balance your day, delivering all the perks of your beloved coffee, plus the incredible benefits of adaptogens, which also help to dial down those less than loved side effects like jitters, anxiety, and that all too familiar crash. A premium mix of medicinal mushroom extracts and other potent adaptogens, each blend is targeted for a specific purpose depending on what you need. Flow enhances your mental clarity and focus, Zen is your go-to for stress relief and balance, and Mojo offers that clean natural energy lift. It's the synergy between caffeine and adaptogens that works wonders, allowing us to relish the caffeine buzz without the drawbacks, ensuring a smooth, sustained energy flow. My top pick is the Zen Blend. It's a lifesaver for those of us who are caffeine sensitive and not to mention comes in the most charming packaging. So why not elevate your coffee experience with London New Tropics? Discover the perfect blend, find your flow and enjoy an exclusive 20% discount with the code SaturnReturns at LondonNewTropics.com. Hello everyone and welcome to Saturn Returns with me, Kagi Dunlop. This is a podcast that aims to bring clarity during transitional times where there can be confusion and doubt. Pausing this for a moment because I've got something exciting to share. Today's episode is brought to you by London Nootropics, the masters of crafting adaptogenic coffee blends that don't just taste heavenly, but they also boost your energy the right way. Now we all love that zesty kick from caffeine. It snaps us awake by outsmarting those sleepy adenosine receptors in our brain. But here's the kicker. Caffeine can hike up our cortisol, giving us the jitters or anxiety, particularly if you're like me and caffeine sensitive. But that's where the magic of adaptogen steps in. These natural heroes level out our cortisol, smoothing the energy boost from caffeine without the downsides. Plus, while caffeine tends to rush in and fade away, leaving you crashing, adaptogens extend that energy, keeping you vibrant without reaching for another cup. So if you want to find your most productive self with Lion's Mane and Rhodiola in their flow blend, Cordyceps in Mojo is known to increase our aerobic capacity, oxygen flow and boost ATP. So it's perfect before a run or workout or when you're feeling fatigued. So if you're intrigued and you want to dive deeper into their blend secrets and discover which adaptogens sync with you, try visiting their website. And because you're part of the Saturn Returns family, enjoy a special 20% off at London Nootropics Adaptogenic Coffee with the code SATINRETURNS. Enjoy! My job is to overthink. My job is to reach for trauma, reprocess it, overthink and turn it into something that may change someone or may help someone. In this episode of Saturn Returns, I am joined by poet, playwright, writer and illustrator Nikita Gill. Nikita began writing at a young age and has now published five collections of poetry, a novel and edited her own poetry anthologies. She first became known by publishing her work on social media site Tumblr and is now described as one of the most successful Insta poets. As someone who dabbles in poetry myself, I was interested to talk to her about her craft because I'm a big believer that finding a creative outlet can be a powerful form of therapy and self-expression. When we are young, we create so much and we often lose touch with that creativity as we get older, unless it's our career. 
I'm very drawn to Nikita's work and the world that she creates, which is both introspective and relatable. She questions the status quo and the concept of destiny and also writes of witches, queens and power. To me, she really embodies a fiery femininity. And as I initiate into my own womanhood, I feel grateful to have had this conversation with her as she is such an inspiration to me. But before we get to Nikita, let's hear from our astrological guide, Nora. Saturn rules the winter. The moment that the sun moves into Capricorn and Aquarius throughout December and February every year, we are officially in the realm of Saturn. And what do we see around us at that time? Nothing. Everything is barren and cold. The days are short, nights are long, darkness hits before we even get used to the sunlight. And yet, energetically, it is one of the most hopeful personal times of the year because we finally get a break from having to shine. It's a time where we get a chance to hibernate and take a break from sunny forest positivity. Rather, behind the mundanity, the opportunity arises to explore our pain, discomforts, and own them without trying to fix the causes of them right away. We're given a chance to sit in the darkness, explore shadow sides, and find the comfort in pain. Energetically, Saturn returns, carries the same themes. It is a time of peeling back the layers so we get to the core of our true selves. It's a time of preserving energy and using it only in what is of service to our self-sovereignty and anything that is truly worth our time. Once we've moved through the Saturnian phase, the spring of our lives arises and we get a moment under the sun, feeling renewed and closer than we were before to a more raw and genuine expression of our soul. I've been a fan of literature since I was very young. My dad and my mom were both readers. So I grew up in a house full of books and books of all sorts because they like different things. And I think when I was really, I, I must have been about 10, my dad actually handed me Notes of a Native Son by James Baldwin. And I have to say, like, there's something very revolutionary about Baldwin's work. And it changes you after you read Baldwin. There's like before you read Baldwin and there's after you read Baldwin. And it's just, he hits the issue like head on. And it was the first time I had seen someone write in a way which was, um, which was a gut punch. It was designed to be a gut punch. Like you should care about these things because these things affect you. Th that's what kind of changed me a little bit. And it made me go, I really want to be a writer when I grow up, you know? I thought that would be a privilege to be able to change someone that way, mm. to spur them into action, to make them want to change the world. So a few years later, uh, I discovered poetry and I discovered it as most of us do in when I was um, nine years old in fourth grade, where we read Walking by Woods on a Snowy Evening by Robert Frost. And I thought it was amazing how every single one of the students, we were nine and all of us had a different interpretation of that poem. Some of them were silly interpretations, some of them were funny ones, some of them were really, really deep and meaningful for a bunch of nine-year-olds now that I think back on it. I just thought it was fascinating that a small poem, which was like a beautiful piece of literature, you know, which rhymed, could affect a bunch of nine-year-olds that much that we all thought something completely different about it. And that's my first experience with poetry. What was the first poem you wrote, do you remember? Um, do you know, my, my grandmother gave me a notebook to write in. 
And mm-hmm. I didn't realize what I was doing was writing poetry. I think my mom read something which I wrote in the diary. And she was like, you do know you're writing poetry. And I said, I didn't know that. And then she introduced me to the work of Maya Angelou and Audre Lorde and um, Toni Morrison. I think I owe my parents a lot because they're radical readers. They encouraged you. Because I think um, my sort of view on poetry and like my personal experience of it has been a very hidden one in the sense that I wrote poetry as, I don't want to sound dramatic, but a bit of a means for survival when I was Mm -hmm. little. Mm -hmm. And I felt like when I was very young, even though you'd you'd never noticed this from the outside, I felt quite alone, Mm -hmm. I think. And I used to use poetry as an outlet for that expression. So I have hundreds of diaries and journals that are honestly my most prized possessions. If the house, if my mother's house was burning down, heaven forbid, that's what I would save. But for me, I've never felt the need to share it with the world. So it's interesting that you had obviously that innate calling to do it. And you're like, this is what I'm supposed to be sharing. Did you ever feel that it was too private to share? Because obviously it is like you're alchemizing your pain in your words so much of the time. It can be an incredibly exposing thing. Have you ever felt that resistance in sharing your work with the world? So I love that you asked me that question because I think that it's really important to talk about um, vulnerability and why poets do the work that we do because so much of our work is, like you said, alchemizing our pain and talking about a very real trauma that we have gone through and then offering it to the world, right? That's terrifying. Yeah. And making it open for criticism and judgment and all the rest, which of course on the internet today, like you're going to get regardless of who you are or how successful you are. And a lot of it does come from people who are afraid of a vulnerability or who are bitter because they they have they, they either haven't found a way to express themselves in a way that speaks to a lot of people, or it comes from misogyny, you know. And the reason is never about you. I find that fascinating about online trolls. When they attack you, it is never about you. It's about them and their issues. And when I learned that, it really changed the way that I looked at Received human beings. It. Yeah. Mm. So I, I've I've I, I quite openly talk about like how mental health is is so important and, and you know you need to know how to set up your boundaries and walk away from things so yesterday yeah. I just I've you know walked away from Twitter for a while because I've noticed that it really deeply affects my my mood mm-hmm. and, and my creativity has to come from a place of like a certain amount of joy and stability because I'm reaching mm-hmm. for such traumatic experiences mm-hmm. I need to have something to hold on to to anchor myself with you know, because when you reach for trauma, you have to know how to reach for it in a way that doesn't, it doesn't hurt you again. Doesn't derail you. Exactly. Exactly. So you have to have an anchor. Yeah. To, to hold space for yourself in that process. Otherwise you could spin out of control. Let's touch on, you mentioned something that I really want to explore a bit more with you because obviously it is so connected is this kind of concept of vulnerability, because I think it's a big buzzword at the moment. People all are like, wanting it 
but I don't know if people know exactly how to practice it. And of course, the paradoxical aspect to it is that you have to have boundaries with it. Whereas sometimes I think I fear I share too much and then I feel unstable and wobbly and like, you know, navigating that space where we're sailing close enough to the wind without like going straight into it, you know, and that's what vulnerability is both in relationships, in our careers, in our public life. So what does like vulnerability really mean to you? Um, I think the thing with vulnerability is the, the letting people see you for who you exactly are, which means your pain, your joys, everything. So for me, the, the word literally means a radical honesty and a radical honesty to the point that even you might not like what you see about yourself in the mirror, but you have to accept mm. that part of yourself. Like one of the things that was really getting to me for a long time, and especially with like, you know, Instagram, social media, people, oh, love yourself, love yourself, love you. It, it's, it's great to say that, but loving yourself is so hard. And if you dig deeper than just the, the love yourself, those two words. Yeah. You you pull apart things which will make you so uncomfortable and you have to love yourself through those things. You can't walk away from yourself. Mm-hmm. You have to sit with yourself through every terrible thing that you have done. And we all do terrible things. We hurt people mm-hmm. we love. We um, harm the people who mean well for us. We lash out at someone who really doesn't deserve it that is all part of being human right Mm. you disappoint people that is the hardest thing i've had to learn when i was young is that as much as i feel that i will not disappoint the people that i love i will all of us do it's a brutal part of being human but it's it's who we are and when you do something like that when you do something that you regret you need to sit with that discomfort And you have to sit inside your own skin as much as you want to be out of it and love Mm -hmm. yourself through it. And when when I say love yourself, that means you just have to sit there and you have to process what you've done and you have to say, I will try to do better. And you have to find a way to make amends and you have to find a way not to hate yourself for that one thing that you've done and fill yourself with self-loathing. That is hard. Yeah. And especially like you say, we are living in this time through the sort of prism and lens of social media that, you know, creates these things of self-love, self-worth, but like it only kind of gives you the surface level stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think people then just do the surface level stuff and kind of project that image, but being able to sit with those things. Also, I think as a society at large, we are allergic to pain which is so ridiculous because it is the universal thing that binds us. But we literally are so like, I don't want to feel that negative feeling. We are so intolerant to being able to sit with our own pain. And I think a big part of that is shame. It is. It is. So uh, Brene Brown is amazing. I I swear, like um, reading her book, Daring Greatly, and I only got around to reading it last week. Um, It, it, it talks about all of this in such a such an interesting way because, like you said, shame. Shame is something that we as a society have become so allergic to. And yet we we heft it onto other people, like so seamlessly, mm. right? Like we weaponize shame for other people and we're allergic to it ourselves. So we know the harm it can do and we shove it onto other people. Like I do think that for there's some stuff which 
people need to face consequences for, right? Like when a man says a horribly misogynistic thing and like he has no qualms for saying it and he knows what he's doing when he does, when he mm. says that, you know, and he gets cancelled um, as people like mm-hmm. to say. I think he's just facing the consequences. You know, he's being criticized. Sure. But then there's people who make actual mistakes who are just like, oh, I'm really sorry I did that. Like they put up a big apology and a genuine, sincere apology. You know, they don't ask for forgiveness. They 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 say it in a way which is like, I am going to sit and I'm going to learn with this and I'm going to take this discomfort and I'm going to sit with this. And people are like, oh, this was such a PR response. And I'm just like, what do you, what do you want? What do you want this person mm-hmm. to do? They've apologized. They've said they're going to sit with it. They've said they're uncomfortable with what they've done. They haven't even said, oh, I'm sorry, I offended you. They've said, I'm sorry, my actions have been hurtful. You know, and I can see mm. why they're hurtful. And it just, people are still like, you know, well, that's not good enough. What yeah, do you want? Not enough. <laughs> yeah. I think we find it so hard to sit with our own inadequacies and failures that it's easier to project onto other people. It's because we see the places we haven't taken responsibility. Mm. And we see someone displaying something that we lack in. And mm. it makes us angrier and shove things, more things at them to see how much they can take until they become like us again, until they break. And that, that is where so much awful? of it comes from. If we took the time to process our trauma and really reflect on our actions every single day, I was asked um, a while back at like one of these, at a really interesting event, if you could give the, if you could ask the world to do one thing and everyone in the world had to do it, what would that thing be? And I said that I would make sure my request would be an hour of reflection. One hour mm. every single day of reflecting on your actions, on how you could have changed the way that you behave towards someone that you, and no phones, no TV, nothing to distract you with, just one hour with your own thoughts every day, thinking things over. It doesn't sound like very much when you say it, but most people would really struggle to give an hour of that because we are so used to stimulating ourselves all the time with it. I mean, I'm no, I'm like always drinking tea, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and sometimes I know that when I wake up and I go and drink tea first thing, I start spinning out into this like anxious mode rather than being grounded and being present. Do you do that though? Do you do an hour every day of reflection? Every day. My job is to overthink. Like I, I yeah. say this often, I'm like, my job is to reach for trauma, reprocess it, overthink and turn it alchemize into it yeah alchemize it and then turn it into something that may change someone or may help someone and there's like I have notebooks and notebooks and notebooks and I'll pick something and I'll share it when I feel like it needs to be shared so that's a very organic thing for me it's I'm not I, I find it really hard to post every single day on social media I think, oh yeah like, me too healthy. Because you should post when you have something to say. But of course, we're, mm-hmm. we live in a time of algorithms and like the algorithm has to, the algorithm gods have to favor you. You must make a sacrifice yeah. <laughs> to the algorithm gods. Every single day. <laughs> that is such a good way of putting it. I hate it. I loathe it. I really do. But I mean, at the same time, we created this very strong social media presence so you're obviously doing something right and doing it enough what was that kind of experience like 
So it happened by accident. Um, I didn't plan for any of this. I would work on a lot of like quite crap machines and because they were all secondhand, um, I was poor. So I had a lot of secondhand machines and they would crash and the motherboards would break and like my work would disappear. And this happened twice that I lost like an entire novel two oh. times. And I, it, it, it breaks you as a writer when that happens. Like you lose your years of work. A bit of like, your soul, yeah. Yeah, and it's gone. Oh it's God. gone. You can never go back to it. You can never reflect. And I was like, my soul, my, my heart, my spirit can't take another one of these things happening. So I started putting my work online on a blog just so that that didn't happen to me again. Like it just, at least I know it's on the internet. And, you know, I, I get a note, like this is on Tumblr. So I would get one note or like two notes. And I feel, I was like, oh, people are reading this. That's really interesting. Because that was my first experience of someone like reacting to something I wrote. And then like just one fine day, I opened up my Tumblr account and it just, there were like thousands and thousands and thousands of notes happening. And I was just like, what <laughs> did I did I accidentally hack someone else's account? Well, what is going on? Like I freaked out and I just like shut the laptop down. I'm like, I think I've I think I've broken something. I don't know what I've done. But <laughs> so I opened it up again and it just it was one of my poems um on Tumblr and it had just gone because it had spoken to a lot of people, it got I think it got like ninety thousand notes like overnight. It was insane. What it was, poem was it? It was um a poem called Almost. Do you remember it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, I think it, it just, it starts with, I haven't looked at the poem in a long time. And it's like, um, the saddest word in the whole wide world is the word almost. He was almost in love. They almost made it. I think it ends with they almost made it. And it just is a series of going through a relationship oh. of almost. And I think a lot of people identify with the concept of an almost love you know, where things almost mm. work out for you. Oh, that's going to make me cry. <laughs> so I'm a bit in my feels today. <laughs> I, feel, I feel you. Oh, I, that's I, really beautiful. It, it just, it's, 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 it's um, I think it spoke to a lot of people because we've all had an almost yeah, love, clearly. you know, and mm. so many of us have people who we wish we had more with. And it just, yeah, it, it overnight, it took off. And then people start discovering the older posts I did. And then some of those took off. And that's kind of how it happened for me. It was very organic. I didn't plan for any of it. Did you, did you have like hopes and aspirations of things going in a certain direction? Or was it just you really communicating your soul and putting it out there and just letting the universe take hold? I mean, genuinely speaking, I just... I think the Tumblr community was fantastic at the time because there were a lot of young women writing on there. So we had a really strong community of women who were like, well, I, I, I don't know if they ever noticed me, but I was like interacting with their work a lot. I, you know, I, I would see their work and I'd be like, you know, I'd like it or I'd leave like a little like message for them going, oh, this really moved me. I really love that you did this. And I think we ended up developing like a community without even trying to develop a community, like it happened. And um, I, I have friends from like six, seven years ago on Tumblr that are real life friends with me now, which was really interesting, who are also writers, you know, who, who exist in the same space as me. So it, we all started on Tumblr. We were like Tumblr girls, basically. And and it... it That's you know, amazing. Yeah, it just, it, we developed a community. We were all going through things, some kind of trauma. 
uh, a lot of it was sexual trauma because you know you realize in your 20s how messed up the world is i think and why it's like that your 20s are such a turbulent time like i i i've spoken about this with so many young yeah. women they really are well this is kind of the the, the entire like construct of, of the podcast was based around my turbulent 20s and me just being like right can't handle this anymore <laughs> you know yeah. get grounded and rooted so yeah I'd love to explore that a little bit with you yeah. because obviously we all I think we all feel like it's very personal yes and yes. that our our lives are just chaotic and upside down everywhere I always describe it as like everyone else got the handbook of life and mine got lost in the mail Yes. Oh my God. That is like the perfect way to describe it. Like it just, it, it it's like, it's like my friends who became parents in their twenties, they mm. really struggled. They have really struggled. And the literature out there for, especially for women um, was, oh, you should be so grateful. The literature out there completely seemed to ignore how hard it is to be a mother, how hard it is to now mm. you've created something that has come out of your body and now that that child that child has changed your life and there's no grieving for that old life nothing prepares you to grieve for that old life so so many of my friends like mm. were like they have to they've had to form like support circles like because they they they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're not the the perfect stereotype of what a mother should be so you've spoken a lot about like misogyny and, and the patriarchy and do you feel that that plays a big part in sort of a woman's identity in in motherhood Absolutely. Womanhood and motherhood for so many centuries has been intrinsically linked. Mm. You know, I'm in my 30s. I don't have children. And there's so many people who talk to me like there's something wrong with me. Like, do you not want children? Oh, why is that? Oh, maybe you haven't met the right person yet. Oh, there's a thousand excuses to tell me why I don't have children other than the one which I give to people, like the reason I give to people, which is I'm not ready. I don't know if I ever will be. That is not good mm. enough for people. I, I think it's just years of patriarchal structuring of what womanhood is supposed to be. And all womanhood has to end at motherhood, basically, mm-hmm. for them. Well, and, and in being chosen. Exactly. Exactly. Because I'm 31. And I've noticed even over the last year, how much of a dramatic shift happens in people's perception of women at a certain, basically in their 30s. It's very, very toxic and it's very outdated, yet we're all still behaving like it's okay and acceptable. And like the idea that being that there's a sort of hierarchy in society and that, that there's a hierarchy in like being a woman and that being married and with a child makes you like a proper woman. Yeah, a proper. Yeah, anything else you're just like... What's wrong with you? Kind of thing. <laughs> this is so damaging. No one's asked me if I want marriage, you know? Thank you. <laughs> it's just like a given. It's like, well, of course you want to get married and have babies. But I was like, but why? Who, who's telling me I have to want those things? I might not want those things. That doesn't make me any less than. No, exactly. I've surrounded myself recently with um, a lot of uh, women who are writers and who are also in their 50s and 60s never married and never had kids and I can't tell you how nourishing that experience is to know Mm. that there are women who are in their 50s and 60s who are very successful writers and very successful artists who have never had children because they've never felt that way inclined and never been married it is so empowering to see it Mm. 
And also it is, is that thing of the circle you surround yourself with is going to kind of echo your beliefs and your feelings. So, of course, if you're hanging out with people, not to say that you should disregard your friends that have like families and have yeah. got married, but yeah. if that's all you're hanging out with, of course, it's going to make you feel like that's the only way of being. And actually just have to broaden your horizons a little bit because exactly. there are such diverse groups of people in this world doing things in amazing ways that are outside the status quo and it's just about finding them like it it just Mm. children aren't for everyone right like that's actually a healthy attitude to life that everyone isn't meant to be a parent It, it is a very difficult job to raise a person it is hard and it it may not be for everyone because it's that hard, right? Like I, I, I look at my friends who have children and I'm like, I don't know how you do it. That's amazing. Oh, that's wonderful. But I don't know if it's for me. I'm like that as well. <laughs> I'm like, this is amazing here. Where you can have it back now. <laughs> <laughs> that's precisely. <it>. <laughs> Honestly, um, I wanted to ask you, you. You said, a quote from you, you said that I have a habit of holding on to things that I should have let go of ages ago. Now, obviously, with what you do, it's important to hold on to certain things and experiences. Do you find that sometimes you hold on to too many and this actually can be problematic? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I say it often. I'm a work in progress. I hold on to things I shouldn't be holding on to. I, I have an issue letting things go. And I think the reason and that this would explain a lot of my relationships, actually, you know, whether they're friendships or whether they're romantic relationships, it's almost like for me, letting go is directly synonymous with giving up. Mm. Somewhere in my childhood, someone taught me that when you let something go, you are giving up. And when you give up, that makes you weak. And that thinking. Wow. Yeah. I, I only I only recognized it a few weeks ago that that is the problem. That is why. Oh, I, wow. That's a big realization. It was huge. It was like a, a midnight epiphany. I was like sitting and reading and I forget what I was reading. And I was looking at, I think it was a character. I was like studying the character as a writer and looking at her from here, you know, as opposed to looking at her like this. And I looked at him like, you've been taught at an early age that giving up and letting go are exactly the same thing. And that's why you're struggling right now. And I was like, she's me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We end up burdening ourselves with all these things that aren't ours to carry anymore. And actually there's something incredibly liberating and empowering about letting go. And it isn't giving up. I think like one of the biggest things for me is like giving up on someone I love, which is why letting go of a person that I love was so hard for me is that, you know, I've given up on them. That, that was someone I invested love and time and they invested love and time in me. And I'm giving them up. Like, what is wrong with me? Why can't I? And examining that and realizing that this is the wrong way to process pain and process mm. the act of letting go. It is not weakness. In fact, in so many places, it is an immense amount of strength. To, to take yourself out of a situation and say that I need to let this go because it's not healthy for me and it's not healthy for the other person. Yeah. Until I learned this, I was doomed to repeat that cycle again and again and again. And now that I've been able to learn that lesson, I won't repeat the cycle, right? And that's that's what 
we're cyclic beings. We repeat the same. We are doomed to repeat those behaviors until we learn something from them. I know. <laughs> and this is what, because I think people often say, you know, oh, I'm attracting this person into my life or this keeps happening. But it's like you can call for something. You can say what you want to the universe and it will go, okay, we're going to bring you these experiences so you can heal this part of yourself before you get there. And so we'll keep bringing them until you do. And I'm such a big believer in that. So you've got to really be grateful for everything that's coming into your life because it is encouraging you to, to grow. Yeah. Blessing or lesson, right? Both of them are good for you. Yeah. A friend of mine actually always says to me, like, it's quite fun. I was going through something that was not a fun experience and I was really upset. And she just looked at me and she goes, just say thank you. And I was like, okay. I looked at the universe and I was like, thank you. <laughs> and now I do it all the time. Whenever something awful happens, I'm like, thank you. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did this yesterday. I was going through something horrible. And I literally was in tears and I was like, thank you. <laughs> But that's the thing, we have to change our understanding and our relationship to pain. Because like if we went look back on every painful experience, it led us somewhere amazing. And I always say that like if we were like a piece of clay, yeah. it's like pain is the hand that sculpts the clay. You know, that's how we that's the process of our becoming. I think that's so beautiful. Like the way you said that was that was very poetic, actually. Well, I'm telling you, I'm a hidden poet. <laughs> I'm actually speaking to you. I'm like, maybe I should start releasing some of my poetry. But I get very territorial about it. I'm like, I'm not sharing it with anyone. <laughs> it, 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 it is hard. It is because there's so much work I don't share with anyone, you know. Really? Because it's, it's only for me. Like, mm. there's some work which is just like, this is this is for me and no one else. And that's good. That's healthy. You should have work that you don't give to anybody you know, paintings that you never show to a soul, like that are just done for you. And I, I think that's like, I think I know we live in a culture where, where everything is very voyeuristic and everyone should, um, oversharing is encouraged. Um, and and to, to an extent, which is just like, I'm just like, did, 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 did I need to know that? Um, you no, know. no. I had a call, I had a call about it yesterday, and it was like you know, share what you're having for breakfast. Do sharing your yoga practice. Like, who wants to see that shit? <laughs> but you're right. We are living in this time where we can't get enough of the mundane. Yeah, I don't get it. I don't get it either. I feel like um, so. I you know my relationship with social media. I find this really funny. But a friend of mine pointed it out to me. She's like, you you only use it for work. You, you only yeah. use it for work. Like, I share poems, I share thoughts, um, and that's it. People don't know anything about my partner. People don't know anything about my parents. Mm. People don't know. Like, they know what I've said in interviews, but they don't know who they are, where they live, nothing. And I, that's what my personal Facebook as well. Like, my, you know, protected personal Facebook where only my friends and family can see. I don't share anything other than work stuff. Well, I guess that's your boundary. I didn't even know I'd established it. <laughs> I guess that's your boundary around your vulnerability because you are sharing such a massive part of who you are through your words. So you have to create those parameters around it. Yeah, yeah. Yesterday, putting up that tweet, just saying, look, I'm really struggling. My mental health is really bad right now. So I'm going to have to take some time away from this app. It took me, it took me a day 
to put that up because I was admitting something which was it was that there's no poetry there's nothing to hide behind there's no beautiful lyrical language nothing it was just a, it was a truth that I was looking at and going I'm going to have to tell people that I'm going away for a while because people tweet me and then you feel rude well, I appreciate you doing this then <laughs> this was really nourishing I really enjoyed this good good and is it I mean I don't want to ask too much so I'm aware we don't have that much time left but is it is it a sort of a circumstantial thing or is this something that you experience from time to time? Because I mean, just to, I, I definitely struggle with it. And I would say that there is a correlation between poets and mental health, a hundred percent, because for me, it was always my therapy. Um, I'll be honest with you. What it is, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a workaholic. I have issues pulling away from my work because I'm always thinking of the new idea, new thought, new new thing to do. And I love my work because it is part of my soul. It's my passion. Um, I wrote a book called The Girl and the Goddess. And it's a really important book to me because it talks about partition, which affected my family very deeply, the partition of India. Um, it talks about, you know, the relationship between grandmothers and mothers and daughters and how complicated they can be. It talks about being bisexual and it talks about the Hindu gods and goddesses and, and the stories they give us. Oh, wow. It's an important book, not just not just for me, but it's about a queer South Asian girl. There are not a lot of books out there about queer South Asian girls growing up. And um, it came out during the pandemic, so it didn't get the the marketing or or any of the things because you know publishing was shut down. It didn't get the love that it needed to be able to thrive. Readers have found it and they have really accessed it and they've loved it whoever has been able to find it. But I took that failure, I'm, I'm putting that in air quotes because it's not a failure. It, 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 it was such a big accomplishment for me to have published this novel. Um, I took it really personally, really personally. And I think the thing that, was, that, that hurt me even more was people started DMing me, a certain demographic of people started DMing me saying, I'm so disappointed that you chose to focus so much on being Indian and being Kashmiri and being Hindu. You know, like the, the, those three things, like I'm so disappointed. Why don't you, your work is universal. You should stick to writing universally. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, of course, there was like, there was this biphobia that came in from, you know, South Asian people as well. And it just, it was a lot to process and a lot to take whilst watching this book not do as well as I had hoped it would. In the, in the sense that it, it it's done well, it's just there were certain dreams I had for it and it didn't reach those dreams. It was hard to process that alongside the biphobia and the misogyny and the um, the racism that came alongside, you know, from from... DMs or reviewers or, or people. And it just, I realized that I need to take the time to walk away and grieve this. And being online all the time is not going to help me process that. And when you're in that space as well, and you're, and then you are just open to anybody and everybody saying whatever they want, it's like that's where you really need to draw a clear boundary. So I think that you definitely did the right thing. Yeah. But especially Twitter, I just was like, this is not helpful. I need to walk away. <laughs> but yeah so that's that's why I've taken the time away but these kind of conversations I was having 
a lovely conversation with a friend of mine yesterday who's a writer as well. They are really helpful, you know, They and I feel like I can come back into myself when I have conversations like this. So thank you for doing this with me today. I really appreciate it. This has been very nourishing for me too. So Nikita, thank, thank you. you so, so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful and nurturing and very nourishing. So I really appreciate it. I loved talking to Nikita and found it really interesting to hear her views on motherhood and identity and about her struggles with letting things go and how she always felt this was synonymous with giving up, something that really gave me food for thought in my own life. What I loved about this conversation was how we should change our relationship to pain and how brave it is to put our artistic work out into the world and how I feel we need to do that more. So I hope it inspires some of you to start writing painting and creating and to express yourself you can find nikita on instagram at nikita underscore gill the novel we discussed in our interview the girl and the goddess is out now as is her poetry collection where hope comes from if you would like a reading with our astrological guide nora you can find her at stars incline on instagram and follow me at kaggy's world on the 27th of May, we'll be having a Saturn Returns live show at the Clapham Grand in London, where I'll be speaking with Catherine Gray. So you still have time to get your tickets from Dice FM. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, I would love it if you could follow the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or just share it with a friend. Saturn Returns is a Feast Collective production. The producer is Hannah Varrell and the executive producer is Kate Taylor. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, you are not alone. Goodbye.